9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, welcome to a special episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Roscoff, and I am joined today by two of our friends, Tom Nichols and Max Boot, who are known to the world as leading never-Trumpers. Um, and I thought it might be worthwhile, as we have 55 days or so to go before the election, to talk a little bit about the dissolution of the Republican Party uh, and what, if anything, is occurring under the surface that might lead to something else. Um, and I think maybe the place to kick it off is that um, Tom had an excellent article in the Atlantic, September 10th, that was entitled, This Republican Party is Not Worth Saving, uh, and then had a good subtitle, which is, No One Should Ever Get a Second Chance to Destroy the Constitution, referring, uh, I guess, to Donald Trump, but to the party more extensively. Um, can you, in a nutshell, you know, summarize for the listeners what your thesis was, and then tell us what the uh, nature of um, the, you know, the dead animals that you got in your mailbox following this looked like. Yeah, um, I, try, I thought I would weigh in after all the initial shouting and jumping up and down was done about the burn it down argument. You uh, just vote out Trump, <clears throat> but try and keep the good Republicans and a center-right uh, party somehow in power to as a counterweight to the crazy socialist Democrats and all of that. And uh, I just can't get there. Um, I can't make the argument for Donald Trump as an existential threat and a, and a, to the constitution and to our national security, but then somehow say, but go ahead and put back everybody who enabled this threat because Trump is just one person. Trump, I mean, we could have avoided the whole debacle of, you know, uh, Donald Trump and, um, you know, this penetration of our government by the Russians and all, the constitutional shredding and the rule of law, we could have avoided all of that if the Republican Party itself had treated Trump uh, as an outcast in 2015 and 2016, since he was never a Republican, but also um, to have done all of the things that Republicans promised they would do in um, in. 2016 and after, which is, oh, well, you know, we're going to, we're the guardrails. We're going to hold his feet to the fire. We'll be right there with you. I'm sure Max heard this many times as well. You know, hey, if Trump really goes off the rails, we'll be right next to you guys holding him to account and we'll be the ones, we'll lead the charge. And it was all just crap. Um, what, the, what it turned out to be was that this was a craven bunch of cowards who want to hold on to political power and want to keep living in the Emerald City and don't want to have to go home and face the people that in theory they represent and want to live with. Um, and so my argument has been that the Republican Party has started to act like an, a parliamentary party that is under iron control by a crazy prime minister. And the only way you can break a party like that is that you have to 
vote all the way down to the grassroots. And yes, that involves voting out people that you might think are innocent or better members of that party, because it's the only way to break the back of party discipline and to make the elected branch, the, the Article One branch of the Republican Party, act like a separate branch of power. So my argument, I think, is logical, it's consistent, and it's conservative that you have to basically empty out this Republican Party. I don't really know if you can kill the Republican Party. America needs a center-right party. If you want to rebrand the Republicans, keep the name, don't keep, I don't really care. I think at the very least, the first two steps are you inflict as much as possible an extinction-level electoral event on the Republicans, and then you flush out the Republican National Committee because at the very least, donors are not going to want to keep pouring their money into losses. I mean, in the end, maybe we just have to be that hard-nosed about it to say, if you're somebody who supports the party and you're a donor and you, you know, lobbyist and you think you're getting what you want out of it, well, you're not going to get what you want out of it if this becomes a permanent minority of kooks. So that was the argument I made. I made. Sounds a lot like some things you've said, Max. Uh, I don't know if you read Tom's article, but the, 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 the question is, um, where, you know, what do you think of it? But where, where do we go from here? Well, I, I fully and violently agree with, with Tom on this, as I do on most things in the world. Uh, you know, I'm somebody who uh, resigned my Republican Party affiliation the day after the 2016 election because I did not want to be part of Donald Trump's party, and I did not trust the Republican Party to control Trump's worst instincts, even at a time when a lot of people were saying, oh, don't worry about it, you know, Paul Ryan and, and Mitch McConnell and Jim Mattis and others, they'll actually be running the government. It's not going to be Trump. He's just going to be playing golf. And I had no confidence that was going to be the case. And sadly, my worst fears have been confirmed over the course of the nearly uh, four years that have transpired since then. What we've seen repeatedly is that Trump will shatter every democratic norm, will violate every law, do anything that he wants to in furtherance of his own personal self-interest that he has no concept of or interest in the national interest, it's all about Trump. It's, this is not America first, this is Trump first. Uh, and he has done great damage to our country by uh, undermining the constitution, fomenting racial violence, uh, just about every kind of awful misbehavior you could imagine. And some that I couldn't imagine has occurred. I mean, frankly, I couldn't even imagine the scale of the devastation that we are seeing now with nearly 200,000 dead Americans in an economy in ruins largely because of the mismanagement of Donald Trump. And that, again, is something that people like Tom and I warned about in 2016, as, as did many other Republican national security analysts, that this guy could not be entrusted with a heavy burden of office. And unfortunately, the Republican Party did not listen. And even now, they do not listen. They refuse to hold him accountable. I mean, just look at what's happened in the last few days uh, since the revelations from Bob Woodward have come out about how Trump understood how serious the coronavirus was, but he lied uh, to the American public about it, a dereliction of duty, which has resulted in literally tens of thousands of, of people uh, who are now dead, who should not be dead. Uh, what is the Republican Party saying about this? Their only real response is, oh, he shouldn't have talked to Bob Woodward. Uh, the substantive misconduct that, that Trump has committed, which I, I would argue, man, uh, the worst president in our history, the Republican Party is just appallingly silent. They have fallen in entirely behind him. And so I don't see how you can possibly 
separate Trump from the Republican Party and, and or root out Trumpism, unless, as Tom says, the party suffers devastating and incomplete defeat at the ballot box. And if you look at what happened with the Republican Party from the 1930s to the 1950s, it took repeated drubbings uh, in national elections uh, before the Republican Party abandoned its isolationism and a lot of the other doctrines of the 1930s and finally lurched towards sanity under the leadership of uh, President Eisenhower. And I think something similar has to happen now if we are to salvage a sane center-right party in America instead of seeing the Republican Party devolve uh, into the American version of, the, of Poland's Law and Justice Party. Well, Tom, you know, I'm, both of you guys make a lot of sense to me. But um, as is hinted at, both in what you said and what Max just said, I don't see many green shoots. You know, I don't see many signs that this successor party, this reawakened party um, is in the offing. The, 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 not just the Republican leaders, but as you say, the Republican rank and file have sort of fallen in line behind Trump since the, the Woodward revelations or, you know, I mean, you know, pick, pick, pick your outrage, you know, Russian bounties or, or 200,000 dead or, 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 you know, sort of traitorous behavior with the Russians before that or whatever. They never, no one comes out and stands up to him. So, it, you know, do you think Max is right? And, and the, the Republican Party has got to go through decades of defeats before it sort of gets the message? Or, or do you see any rumblings, hints? Well, I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I have really limited myself uh, because, you know, I, I'm a political scientist and I know the limits of long cycle predictions and all of that. Um, I've limited myself to pretty much the next few election cycles and basically the enough election cycles so that anyone who is guilty of enabling or defending Trump is driven out of office. I mean, I am not going to stop being never Trump after November 3rd. I am going to be never Haley, never Cotton, you know, never any of these guys. Anyone who has been complicit in this betrayal of the Constitution is pretty much going to, you know, I'm going to just advocate voting against those people uh, until my last breath. Um, but to get to your point, David, about how do you kind of renew this, you know, kind of uh, rotate the soil and create new green shoots. This is why I've been arguing for voting against the Republicans right down to dog catcher. Because the thing Trump and Trumpism did that was really remarkable was that he captured the party organizations and the infrastructure right down to state and local levels. And I think everyone has, to, all of those people have to pay the price. You know, I don't think your local state representative walked around spouting Trumpist nonsense and not wearing a mask a year now should be able to say, well, you know, I'm just serving in the legislature in Albany now, and I didn't mean any of that stuff. No, they all have to pay that price in part, I would argue, to clear those offices out to let younger or newer people enter politics who are not lunatics. Um, I told a story on Twitter about a year ago that made everybody, about two years ago during the 2018 primaries, it made everybody really mad, but I um, voted against a local candidate for state representative because she was a Trump delegate to the RNC. And I said, I am not going to just 
vote against Trump. And she came to, you know, we had an argument about this. Like the candidate was mad at me. And I said, you know, I can't, I can't fight Trump on one level and then replant those seeds all over again at the local level. This has to be, and I think this was where Max may have a point. This might be a 10-year project of simply saying, if you were one of the people who got on board this madness, you know, reasonable voters and certainly reasonable center-right conservatives should shun you forever because you don't get a second chance at this. This was the point I was making in my Atlantic piece. You don't get a second bite at the apple of betraying the Constitution. There's no do-overs on that one. Um, you had a, it was a four-year test of character. You failed it. You're off the you're off the roster in my in my view. So you know Max could be right. It could be a really long-term thing. Me, I'm just looking over the next few cycles and basically identifying. I mean, I'm a I am now. I'll never join another party, and I'm now an avowed ticket splitter. Uh, as I was for most of my life. I was not a straight party line voter. But for now, I'm going to look for Republicans who were in any way defending this or enabling this and just voting against them, basically, uh, you know, in favor of, I mean, I guess that makes me a yellow dog Democrat or something for a while. But um, I, I just don't, I, I just, this, this as, as Don Corleone said, this I do not forgive. Uh, and I just don't think we can have some sort of ollie ollie oxen free when all this is over. Obviously, just... there's going to be a mad scramble that ollie ollie oxen free. Every everybody is going to say, "Well, you know, I meant well this way, or I meant well that way." Max, do you see any um, hint of of a kind of discipline among never Trumpers? within the Republican party, the, the, you know, the, the, you know, Buddhism, Nicholsism, um, uh, uh, you know, you know, the bulwark and, and, and the work that, that, it, that, it, that is being done, you know, by others to sort of maintain the party line. Or do you, do you think what's going to happen is Trump's going to lose, maybe McConnell's going to lose, and then everybody's going to say, "Well, you know, Mitt Romney won't be that old. He voted. He voted for Trump. You know, impeachment. Uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll line up around him. He's normal. Uh, or, or, you know, Liz Cheney, you know, isn't as bad as as um, uh, you know, pick you know Mike Pompeo. So let's 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 line up around." Liz Cheney, because she's 30% normal. You know, what do you think? Well, for starters, I mean, I have to admit that the trajectory of the Republican Party is very difficult to predict. I mean, I would never predicted uh, in, in 2015 that Donald Trump was going to be the nominee or the president. So who knows what's going to happen in four years? I mean, I'm not that optimistic. I wrote a column. Hey, Max, I was, I was with you on election night. At right. I remember in that. 2016. Was, yes, we and shared it, the and, trauma and, together, and, yeah. Yeah, we did. And at 7.30, we didn't predict right. that Donald Trump was no, exactly. So, we, I mean, we have to be modest in, in, in our ability to prognosticate here. I mean, uh, I will say that I, I wrote a column not too long ago saying that, hey, if I had to bet, and again, admitting that I, uh, my prognostications did not work out so well last time, but if I had to bet on who would be the Republican nominee in 2024, there is somebody 
there are a few sane individuals in the party like Mitt Romney, or I mentioned Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland. But if I had to bet, I would say that the nominee in 2024 is more likely to be Tucker Carlson than Larry Hogan, because I don't think they've gotten the crazy out of their system. And even if they lose this time, I think they will have an excuse. And, and Trump is constructing that excuse before our eyes, saying it was mail-in balloting, it was fraud, it was a hoax, it was the China virus, I was doing great, best economy ever, China sabotaged me. And remember, Trump is not going away. And I mean, he's certainly going to continue tweeting. He'll probably continue speaking at rallies. Here's the nightmare. If he loses this year, there's nothing to stop him from running for president in four years time or from uh, trying to maneuver Don Trump Jr. to to be his successor. That's actually the way I would bet. And I just don't see much evidence that the Republican Party, uh, based on one electoral defeat, is going to suddenly reject uh, Trumpism. And in fact, if you look at what's happened since 2018, when the Republicans took a drubbing in the House of Representatives, what normally happens in those situations when the Republicans lose Senate or House seats, it's the most moderate members who get kicked out. It's going to be people like Susan Collins, who, as as you said of Liz Cheney, you can say of Susan Collins, she's maybe 30 percent normal. OK, she's not she's certainly not a hardcore Trumpkin. But those are the people who are going to lose seats. The ones who are going to stay are going to be like people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is going to win a House seat from Georgia, even though she is a full-blown believer in the QAnon uh, conspiracy theory. So you're going to have more, uh, you know, as the as the House and Senate caucus shrinks on the Republican side, it's actually going to be even more lunatic than it is today, at least for the conceivable future. I will offer one, one possible uh, uh, bit of hope. I don't want to, you know, lead our listeners to uh, to be jumping off a bridge after they after they uh, put down the podcast. I think that there is some hope. And one one ray of hope, I would say, is that Republic, perversely enough, that Republicans have shown themselves to be completely unprincipled, at least the politicians, completely unprincipled and really just out for themselves and for electoral advantage. And that's what caused them in 2016 to jettison like 80% of what they had previously believed to get on board the Trump train. And in the case of people like Ted Cruz, even swallowing the fact that Trump has propagated horrible, a horrible conspiracy theory about his father killing JFK and insulted his wife. They don't care. All they care about is their own personal advantage. And so they jettisoned decades of ideology about uh, fiscal conservatism, about being pro-immigration, about being tough on Russia, about NATO standing with allies, uh, you name it, uh, you know, about character in office, all this kind of stuff. They, it all went out the door because uh, they were all about winning. So here's, here's the only possible ray of hope I can see for the short term, if we're to avoid like this, this decades long cycle of trying to cleanse the Republican Party. If there is somebody on the horizon who is kind of a sane Trump, somebody who is uh, very charismatic, somebody who might be a celebrity, and could conceivably coming out of nowhere to take the Republican nomination. Uh, what Trump showed is that ideology is, is uh, in, in conformity with Republican principles is not that important. Uh, that, that the power of personality and so-called authenticity can actually matter more. So if there is somebody like that, you know, again, this is kind of the analogy of Eisenhower coming in in 52 from nowhere to take the Republican nomination from Taft and the hardline conservatives. I'm not saying it's likely, but if there is somebody like that, you know, somebody who's kind of a younger, more charismatic Michael Bloomberg type, maybe it's possible that 
you know, if that person actually becomes the nominee and the president, the Republicans will fall in line behind him, just as they've fallen in line behind Trump. And I'm not saying that's likely, but that's the only kind of ray of hope I can see in the short term. Yeah, saying Trump sounds to me like it's sort of the department of oxymorons and it's <laughs> up there with the greedy Santa Claus and the humanitarian Hitler and, and, and you know, others, others that are out there. But Tom, you know, in, in what Max said, that there is another seeming point here because the Republicans do seem unprincipled. And so it seems to me that the only real prospect for a major reversal within the Republican Party is to make November 3rd essentially deliver the message that Trumpism is toxic. You know, if it's a close election and people say, well, that's the Republican base and the Dem base and, you know, the crossovers were a couple of points, we're right back where we started. People are going to say, how do we maintain that base? But if, if Biden wins by 10% or 12%, if the, the, the Republicans are swept out of the Senate, if McConnell and, and Lindsey Graham, in addition to Susan Collins, you know, these kind of people disappear, that might then just take all of these unprincipled people and say, oh, this is toxic. We got to go and find something else. Do you, do you have any hope well, the of problem, that? The problem is we're so polarized that we can't really do landslides anymore. So that's, that's a problem that's just baked into the cake that... Um, you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna recreate 1974, 1980, uh, you know, or 1984. Um, we're just not a country anymore. I mean, at this, I mean, at this point, um, you know, on, on this, Donald Trump was right. He can shoot people on Fifth Avenue. Um, he can do. He can. You know, everybody's using the cliche Fifth Avenue. Let me rephrase. He can be caught on tape lying about a pandemic that killed 200,000 Americans and it won't matter uh, to about 40%. And I, I said yesterday on Twitter, and I've been taking a little bit of static for this, but I, it's a thought that I've been kind of working around. I think part of the problem is that Trump represents a kind of a failed civilization within the United States. And that group of people who have kind of reached the end of any political development as a movement in America, um, who really feel like they're just, you know, there is nothing on the horizon and their days now are going to be spent staring at YouTube clips and Facebook memes. Uh, they are going to have some champion for them. The question is, I think, does the Democratic Party then become, um, and by the way, we're talking about all this as if Trump is going to lose in November, and I don't think that's a sure thing at all. But I still think that what's happening here is the Republican Party or the Democratic Party is going to just get bigger and bigger and bigger uh, because it, in a way they're becoming the isomer of the Republican Party 30 or 40 years ago. The Democrats will rapidly become the party of everyone else. There will be Trump loyalists and then everyone else. That, I think, is how the country ends up coming back to some kind of sanity because the Trump base is, is self-limiting. It's demographically and regionally uh, self-limiting. It, it is not sustainable. And instead of trying to enlarge the Republican Party, the Republicans went for the cheap, easy win of squeezing the last few drops of crazy out of a base that is going to shrink no matter what anyone does. The three of us are sitting here in the discussion. Fact is, 20 years from now, 
um, you know, America's going to look different and it's just, this is going to be almost seem like a quaint academic conversation. So um, my hope is before that happens, because I don't think that's good for the country. I don't think a kind of default enlargement of the Democrats will be good for them, just as I don't think it was good for the Republicans. Uh, and I, and that's why I'm arguing for shock the party and empty it out now while there's still a chance to have a discussion about what it means to be a center-right party instead of just becoming this kind of big blobby, not Trump thing that includes everybody from, you know, far left activists to uh, East Coast business elites who can't, you know, get their heads around how crazy Trump is. I, I think that's going to have to be a demographic process. Maybe in this sense, I'm coming back to where Max was about 10 or 20 or 30 years. Because the people that have really climbed that tree for Trump, the people that have just doubled down on everything, they are never coming back. I said this four years ago, and I took a lot of static about it from the anti-anti-Trumpers, who I think are the most cowardly of all the political forces in the world. Um, you know, but I, I said a long time ago, once people go down this road, they can't back up. There is no way to do it. They are treed cats. And so we just have to kind of wait for this demographic to age and pass from the scene while a younger demographic comes up. And the real question is, how do you limit all that damage in the meantime? My answer is obliterate through the electoral process as many as Trump and as many pro-Trump elements as you can find. So Max, there, there, there are, in, 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 you know, Tom is focusing on a demographic reality. And the demographic reality, according to the Census Bureau, is by the year 2043, the majority population of the United States will be non-white. And that that is irreversible um, a permanent trend and that will have an effect on the Republican Party. But there are a couple of other realities in addition to the demographic reality that we have to deal with. One of these is a constitutional reality. Constitutional reality is that by 2030, one third of the population of the United States will be electing two thirds of the Senate seats. And that one third oh, is primarily red states, primarily less tolerant, primarily less integrated. Uh, and it's going to have a built-in advantage both within the United States Senate uh, with implications for the judiciary, uh, but also within the electoral college because the electoral college represents the total number of seats between the House and the Senate. And so this minority during this transitional period has a leg up constitutionally. There is also, as Rosa Brooks was saying in our Monday podcast, uh, a, an epistemological reality, which is to say there are two realities. You know, that there is, there is a group, this one group that Tom calls everybody else, that believe in science, history, math, reality. They believe their own eyes. There is another group that says, I will believe in whatever advances the interests of my buddies um, uh, uh, or is a, a way for me to express my grievances, regardless of whether it's true or not. And then, and I don't mean to complicate this further, and I'll leave it at this, there's also an economic reality. The economic reality is the vast majority of the gains of the United States for the past 40 years, accelerating since 2008, 
have gone to the top 10% of the population and the vast majority of them to the top 1% of the population. The, the average minimum wage has stayed flat. Uh, the average wage has stayed flat. The minimum wage has actually gone down relative to what it was in the 70s. Um, and, and there is a growing divide in the United States between the people who have economic power and the people who don't. And as it happens, the people who have economic power have, at least during this Trump period, aligned themselves with the people who are frightened by this demographic change, trying to take advantage of this constitutional edge, um, and uh, are taking the anti-fact side of this epistemological divide. So, you know, those are all trends that are afoot. You know, how do you see that that uh, tag team match playing out uh, in the wrestling match of American politics? I might need a couple of hours to fully unravel uh, that question and, and answer and it. There's, there's a lot going on there, David. <laughs> yes, and, and we only uh, have 30 seconds. <laughs> no, yeah, right. Go ahead. Well, let me just put it this way. Look, I think it's very easy to paint a very dire and dark uh, picture of America's future. It's also very easy to paint a much more optimistic picture. The optimistic picture is basically that things have gotten so bad right now that we can only go up and that this is actually causing uh, a, a huge portion of the public to finally understand how the country has been uh, falling apart for a number of decades. And in, in the new issue of The Atlantic, for example, George Packer paints the kind of more optimistic scenario where this is, the, this is that kind of moment like the Great Depression uh, that can actually cause us to uh, to uh, toss aside the roadblocks to reform and to get things done on, you know, on health care, on income inequality, on climate change, on, on racial injustice, some of the massive problems that we confront, some of which, you know, people are, more people are paying attention to now than ever before. And you can imagine in this scenario, if there is a democratic landslide in November, maybe, just maybe, uh, we can get some meaningful action on some of these issues and start to recover as a country. So we're no longer languishing as there was just an index of social indicators that came out yesterday that showed that the United States has actually been falling for decades. We're now like number 28 in the world or something like that, uh, you know, behind other advanced industrialized countries. So that's the optimistic scenario. The more pessimistic scenario is uh, to point to some of the factors that you pointed out that the way our constitutional system is constructed, it gives an outsized voice uh, to the least populated regions of the country. And that was obviously not intended by the founding fathers because our, our demographics looked very different in, 17, uh, in the 1780s than they do today. Uh, but you're right. I mean, and even, you know, even if Democrats win the Senate, it's not like they're going to win with 60 seats. The best case scenario is probably 51-49. And some of those Democrats will be elected uh, from uh, Republican states. And so it'll be very hard to push through some of these major changes. And then you still have uh, this Republican Party, which, as, as Tom says, is certainly relying on a diminishing demographic because it's becoming a white power party. And as, as you pointed out, uh, uh, white people are going to be a minority in America by the 2040s. But nevertheless, as you also pointed out, they're going to be a, a potent minority uh, with outsize, uh, an outsized say in the, in the Senate, uh, and, and in the Electoral College especially. And so it's quite possible 
uh, to fight uh, this kind of rearguard action against the forces of technological, demographic, and social change, which is essentially what Trump has been doing, what he represents, I think, is really this white backlash against the changing nature of America. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's a fairly potent appeal for a substantial portion of the Republican base, which even if the party is shrinking, uh, you can still see how it will remain a potent force simply because of the way the Constitution is set up. And it's possible to get rid of the filibuster, but it's not going to be possible to get rid of the Electoral College. Just, again, the, the minority states have a veto. They're not going to give up on the, on, on the system that gives them the advantage. And so, you know, that you can imagine, you know, a very dark future for this country where we become less and less democratic, less and less representative. And right now you're seeing the anger and frustration primarily from the Trump supporters in the red states. But, you know, you could imagine what would happen if Biden loses the Electoral College while winning the popular vote. Or, you know, if you, as has happened repeatedly with Democrats in the past several decades, uh, or, you know, if, if Republicans hold on to the Senate, um, there's going to be growing anger among the, the Democratic base. And so, I mean, I wouldn't go this far, but I mean, some people are talking about, you know, these are uh, conditions for an incipient civil war in America. Again, I wouldn't go quite that far, but I think it is a dangerous situation and one where uh, the legitimacy of our political system uh, could be called into challenge as never before. David, can I, uh, can I make a point about the inequality argument? Because I think it's time to call bullshit on some of these uh, populist arguments that the Trumpists have been making for a while. I mean, let, I'll stipulate right up at the top, you know, with somebody like Jeff Bezos, I, I I don't think we should probably, I don't think it's a good thing to have a world in which you literally can have trillionaires. You know, I used to be a good conservative to say millionaires and billionaires, you know, that's, those are people that just work hard. But yeah, in a new kind of economy where people can become trillionaires, you know, just by capturing a giant market and then just standing there while money falls out of the sky. I, I get it. And we're going to have to have that argument. Um, but I don't think this is about economics. I think that I still think this is about culture. And the the way you can get at this is thinking about how much of this nostalgia uh, about supposedly better times in America is absent any cultural discussion whatsoever. You know, the marker for a lot of these arguments is always 1970, right? So in 1970, you know, a single worker could maintain a family of four. It's kind of like the Archie Bunker thing, right? Archie Bunker owns a two-bedroom house in Queens. He lives on Hauser Street. He can have his family live with him. Is what? Okay. What? What we're really hearing is, I want all of that from 1970, but I don't want to give up any of the cultural changes that I also supported, that Americans also supported, that got them into the situation they're in. For example, yeah, you could go back to you know, one worker being in a, you know, ha driving down rents and having affordable homes, but then you have to say no more women in the workplace. That's how that was done. There weren't women in the workplace. You didn't have two incomes. Landlords weren't assuming that you could charge two people um, for the privilege of living in a place. You'd have to go back to a time where New York was not a nice place to live, where Queens was dangerous, where it was not a, a you know, the kind of environment that when, when um, Queens was full of people like Donald Trump. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, well, or people, yeah, or worse. Um, you know, I, I mean, you just this this notion that well, if we could just reset the clock to a time of better equality, sure. But nobody wants to give up all the other stuff that goes with that. When I when I see, 
you know, these angry white boys, you know, saying, we will, you know, Jews will not replace us. I got news for those guys. You were replaced 35 years ago when you didn't get married and have kids because you wanted to live in a different kind of culture. You made cultural choices. The country made cultural choices. We got what we wanted and we choked on it because we didn't want to accept the costs and externalities of a certain kind of culture after 1970. If you want to live like Archie Bunker, then you have to eat that whole crap sandwich. It means you have to live, you know, with a, a shabby car and you have to have one television with three channels on it and you can't eat out and your wife stays at home and makes the meals. You know, I mean, it's, no one thinks this through. They simply say Donald Trump is this primal howl against, you know, the, un, the terrible economic unfairness of it all. Well, if you're going to roll back all of those things, then you're going to have to get Americans to accept the huge complicity they bear for creating a culture in which these economic realities became unavoidable. Now, personally, I'm not against any of those things. I'm glad women work. I'm glad, you know, we have two income families. I'm glad that you know, children have more opportunities for education. All of those things are good, but for the people who constantly complain about them, they never want to take on the other half of it. They want to roll back the clock only as far as it benefits them, but not think about their own part in creating all of this. And that to me is a, is a huge part of Trumpism and why I'm increasingly starting to think about Trump nation as a kind of failed civilization that jumped ahead on these cultural issues suddenly got buffeted by externalities that they brought on themselves and now they're looking for scapegoats to blame for lives that you know conservatives and this is where i think max and i you know this is where it's really painful where conservatives were warning 30 and 40 years ago that if you go this road these things will happen these things were not a surprise down the line we're all acting like this was some kind of shock that came out of nowhere when in fact you had everybody from you know, people like James Q. Wilson, for example, and others warning that these cultural trends are going to have dire, profound consequences for American culture and the American economy. But, you know, nobody, the party was too good. We were having too much fun. We didn't want to hear that. And now we want somebody to pay the tab. Um, as a progressive, um, you know, I, I think we could have a very long discussion about that, which hopefully would be a fairly civil discussion, because I certainly don't think that, you know, you are arguing, I hope you're not arguing that uh, taxing capital gains at a different rate or changing the way we handle carried interest or uh, providing big bailouts to Wall Street firms or changing the way that the upper levels of our society are taxed that is radically different from the way that it was say, during the Eisenhower era, or, um, or you know, are responsible for the... the, the no, it's the other way around. I'm, I'm arguing that um, the, the, the very same white working class voters who are howling about economic changes participated in cultural changes that made those economic changes almost inevitable. And, and well, one, of them, one of them is, for example, the cost of housing. Yeah. You know, it used to be that a single worker could afford a house. That's because his wife didn't work because no one's wife. No, the, the market couldn't charge as though there were two, two rents. So which do you want? Do you want cheap rent or do you want two earners in the family? 
you know, which which part of this cycle do you want to break? I, I don't have any problem with the changes. And, and I actually think on this, I am now much more closer to the progressives about the need for changing the tax structure. I mean, we cannot, we've become like ancient Athens where all this money is being concentrated at the top. We're going to have to start building Parthenons just to get the money back into the hands of ordinary people. So I, I on this, I'm in heated agreement with you. I'm simply making the point that the people that are angriest the, the Trump base refused to accept any responsibility for the cultural changes that they themselves enjoyed and supported, whether it's the deferring of marriage or, you know, easy divorce or two-income families. All of those things were fine until the externalities of those things started to occur to them, and now they want to back up the clock and blame somebody for it. And I think that's just... Um, um, what's it's reactionary. I mean, you know, that's there's, that that kind of nostalgia is just reactionary. Well, there's no there's no question about that. Um, we perhaps at some point in the future we'll talk a little bit about some of these formulas. We've only got a couple of minutes left. We've talked about big, big sort of issues, structural issues, um, and I apologize for dumping a big intellectual stew on your head in the last question there, Max. But 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 so let's let's just go back to the kind of superficial stuff that we're all familiar with from being on TV. Um, the elections in 55 days. Um, what do you think is going to happen, Max? Well, first off, uh, I wasn't really complaining about your question. It actually is a relief from from the normal sound bites, uh, but. In terms of the election, I, I guess I will take refuge in quoting Yogi Berra, whoever it was who said, I've given up making predictions, especially about the future. I mean, as we were discussing, you know, we were both stunned, David, to, to see Trump win in 2016. So I, I have no idea. I mean, at this point, I'll just go with, uh, you know, with Nate Silver and, and kind of the, the smart polling money, which, and he's basically saying that uh, Trump has about a 30% chance right now. So that means he has a significant chance. I mean, I would not certainly, uh, you know, having written Trump off before, I would not write him off again and conclude he has no hope of winning, especially with the Ru with the Russians apparently ramping up their efforts to reelect him. I do think that the likelihood is that Biden wins, but I think there is a significant risk that, uh, that, that Trump will win. And I think whatever happens, unless it's a Biden landslide, I think you're like to, likely to see a huge mess after the election with Trump refusing to accept the legitimacy of the election returns and doing everything in his considerable power uh, to try to win through uh, machinations what he could not win at the ballot box. Tom, what you, what you don't know is that, that, that Max and I were at an event that we had, we, that we had organized a foreign policy for the election. We were in a little club in New York and there was an audience and we were, we had some policy people and actually some comedians and we thought we were gonna sort of joke our way through this whole thing. And if, if and picking up on what Max just said, everybody had their eyes on their phone and this, this gauge that the New York Times had on the front page uh, and you know, for, for a while and was on their website, which essentially showed the percentage likelihood that, that Trump or Clinton was, were gonna win. And I, and I remember distinctly between the hours of eight and nine, we everything was going great. Max could say something, I would say something, other people would, 
the, the audience would laugh. And then around 8.30 or 8.40, the needle crossed 50, you know, the needle started out at like 30 something. And then it crossed 50 and it became more likely that Trump was gonna work, was gonna succeed and nothing worked. I mean, no one would laugh at anything. The audience the day, became The day the laughter silent. died. <laughs> yeah, the audience became absolutely dead silent. Yeah. Kind of an um, irony that we elected a clown and yet that was the day that the laughter died. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's true. But, but the point was the needle was here. So what do you think's gonna happen? You said you've given up long-term predictions. This is not a long-term prediction. Uh, you're, asking, you're asking me or Tom? No, Tom now. Tom, um, yeah. You know, uh, the problem is it's hard for me to disentangle what I think is going to happen from what I dearly want to happen. So the cold, rational political scientist in me says, um, you know, Biden's going to recapture that basically 2016 was a fluke that if it weren't for Hillary Clinton, you know, the second most unpopular person to ever run for president and the Hillary factor and the Comey letter and all that stuff, that Biden, you know, uh, at Biden, there's no way Biden can be running seven points ahead for months at a time and somehow lose the electoral college. And he's got to, that would, that lead would have to drop to two or three percent to have him win by two, lose the electoral so the, the kind of coldly mathematical side of me says uh, that's almost, you know, um, unless something dramatic changes. And I actually think things will get worse for Trump. Let me try and inject a little sunshine and say, in the short term, the, the pandemic's going to get worse because we're going into cold weather and schools and colleges are opening and we're already seeing the disaster, the second round, third, fourth round of this disaster um, the economy is not going, for the average person affected by this, unless you're in the stock market, the economy is not going to get much better. And then there are, you know, Trump is going to keep saying crazy things that are going to keep a lid on his potential base. I think this election may well be 99% baked in. With that said, I still get, you know, we all have 2016, all three people in this conversation have 2016 PTSD. And every time we start talking about this, and I, I can see it on your faces, the cold fingers of fear start to kind of clutch around our stomachs, you know, and to say, and yet, um, if there's some fluky outcome, you know, and suddenly it's Biden 265 and Trump 290, uh, you know, that we're going to be back in this uh, crap again. I think the one thing that I agree with Max on is I, unless uh um, Trump wins or Biden wins in a landslide, the most dangerous time ahead is November 3rd to January. Because if Trump doesn't win, he is literally going to try and burn down the system even more than he is now. If you, I mean, what we're going through now won't be a patch on the stuff that he and people like William Barr are going to try and do between November and the seating of the uh, Electoral College in early December. I mean, it will be the most dangerous time in American government since the Civil War. See, Max, you're trying to keep those people off the ledge. You know, you said, well, I don't want them to jump off a bridge at the end of the podcast. And Tom's like, jump. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that's, that's, that's where we've ended up here, I'm afraid. Uh, great discussion. Always great to talk to you guys. I think that uh, your perspectives are, are absolutely vital. I also think both of you have been, uh, if you'll forgive me for saying so, rather heroic in the degree to which you have stood up against the trends and, 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 and made the kind of hard look at where you've been 
um, that's required to come out in the right place right now. And, and, and I think you've changed a lot of minds and I think you've made a difference. And I think, honestly, if things turn out well on November 3rd, a lot of it's going to be because of folks like you who were willing to speak truth to power in circumstances like this. So we're grateful always to have you on. We hope you will come back as we get closer to all of this and we can feel those cold fingers clutching our heart um, together. Um, uh, in the meantime, folks, we've got a lot of interesting stuff coming up next week uh, on the podcast. Representative Ro Khanna is going to join us. Uh, Peter Strzok is going to join us, um, uh, plus, plus our regulars. So uh, go to the dsrnetwork.com to see what's what. Uh, and while you're there, there's no harm in uh, signing up to be a member and help supporting conversations like this one, which are, I think, uh, important and invaluable. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Max. Thanks to everybody for listening and stay safe. Bye-bye. Thanks very much. Thanks.